0: Okay, if you look on the back of the bulletin, again, let me remind you there's all kinds of information in this thing, okay? Uh, one of them is has to do with the insert here. Um, Right now, media. I think like 180, 190 of you are using it or have accessed it. This is just a reminder that it's one of the things that we provide is all kinds of wonderful resources in here. I know some of the small groups are using the video series, various video series in here. So take a look at it if you've not been uh, onto that um, website. And then on the back, we have a whole bunch of things coming up. We're already talking about the summer. Yes. <laughs> Remember, I'm a Florida boy. I'm pretending to be a mountain guy, it's hard some days, boy oh boy, so I decided I'm going to start praying that the Lord wants me to stay here when it reaches 100 degrees. Oh man, it's tough. Well, on to more serious things. There's all kinds of things coming up. We, had a, we have a family night coming up. You see it right there in the purple. And again, let me remind you that that's one of the ways we minister to our young families. And so if you were at the last one, uh, you'll notice that there were some older people there. Uh, that's a good thing. We need grandparents there. It's a lot of fun. And so pay attention to that. Look at all these dates coming up. We're already planning for uh, VBS. VBS is one of those times when we just fill this whole room with kids, Three hundred three hundred and fifty thousand, 350,000, something like that. We take all the chairs out. That's what it seems like. You can't even walk from there to here. There's so many children. And so just be praying for these things. August 18th, Faith Day at the Rockies. So save the date. Start putting these on your calendar. These are things that we do as a church. And uh, they're, they're real, a part of our church family, just the way we encourage each other and get together. And then men's small group, there's a couple of those starting up for breakfast. So uh, feel free to talk to those guys as well. Okay, how many of you... Know someone that is struggling right now. Let me see. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we don't... uh, We have our very lives to confirm that what God says is true, huh? Sin and brokenness are a normal part of our world. I don't know, it just seems this week, kind of been on my mind, friends that are... One of my friends, his 11-year-old son, has a very aggressive form of cancer. And, and uh, you know, everywhere I turn, I'm running into somebody that is, face, is in a relationship with someone who's really challenged marriage, struggled a bit, maybe some kind of addiction issue. And so I just felt, let's start the day off today by just praying and lifting up. Uh, we have so many people that it seems like they're just hanging in there sometimes. It's hard to have victory when you're in pain. It's hard to experience victory. It's hard to experience victory when your life is threatened with some cancer or whatever. So let's just stop and lift up our friends and our church. Father, we do lift up people that are so dear to us. Lord, I'm so glad that you are God. You you have a handle on all of this. And Lord, I, I know enough to know that pain is... And suffering is important in our journey. I've been there. And uh, Lord, I have many friends right now that are struggling in deep ways in our congregation and outside of our congregation. Christians and non-Christians. It doesn't matter to me. I just know lots of people. Uh, and I pray, Father, that, that you would be very present in their lives. Be even more present than you've been before. Help us as a church to be loving and kind and gracious to those, uh, Lord, who are struggling and suffering. Whether it's a mental illness, whether it's cancer, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a job loss, whatever it is that they're going through, uh, help us, Father, to to be like you, to be loving, kind, and gracious to them. And to continue to show yourself strong in our church, Lord because we desperately need you. And uh, we are delighted that you would call us your children. Thank you for that. In your son's name. Amen. Well, we're in a series on holiness. And what we've done with holiness, often when we do a series on holiness, we kind of we kind of start in the New Testament and because that's more related to our world as Christians and then we occasionally kind of dabble back into the Old Testament what I wanted to do was go back into the Old Testament and take a look at where it all began the law the covenant into what we call what we call the Old Testament you can call it the Old Covenant you can call it the Jewish scriptures you can call it the Hebrew scriptures you can call it whatever you want but the first part of the Bible where it all began and so rather than rather than talk about the end of the story what Christ did, which is important, we're gonna get there actually. We have Lent coming. Somebody asked me this morning, how long are we going to be in holiness? Oh for at least two years. No I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm doing a survey and it's still going to take us like 15 weeks. So we're going to spend all this time in the Old Testament after today, two more weeks, and then we have a break and then we start Lent. And we're going to spend all the Sundays of Lent in the New Testament looking at what happened with this whole idea of covenant and holiness. And so I decided I wanted to take you through it from the beginning so that you begin to get a sense, a real sense of what this covenant, this law was all about. Paul uses the word law, but that's shorthand for something much bigger. It has to do with God's relationship with us. Okay, And when he uses the word law, he's often dealing with that word from the perspective of what it had become in his world, something that everybody had to obey. And so he gives us lots of insight along the way, Paul does, as to how significant this covenant of God really was. It's the backbone of all that we believe. I had a, I speak at uh, both Denver Seminary and Dallas Seminary regularly in classes, and one of the questions I get as a New Testament major—that's me—do I ever go back into the Old Testament? Which makes me just laugh. It tells you something. I don't ever. I can't really ever remember a sermon where I wasn't in the Old Testament. I don't know how to explain the new without looking at the old, because that's where it all began. That's the foundation. That's where it's all explained and laid out. And that's where it all makes sense. So let me just kind of do a summary of where we've come so far. I made some notes of kind of what we've talked about. The very first question we ask is, do you see holiness as a gift from God? Or when I mention the word holy or holiness, do you think, oh, more rules, (laughs) that sort of thing? It depends on your tradition how you answer that question. So look where we've come. The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, they teach us that God's goal for human life is that we were created to live in fellowship with God. That was our core reason to be created, was to live in fellowship with Him. In order for that to happen, uh, it's necessary for both parties, us and God, to understand each other. Well, God has no problem on His end because He's God, but we do. We're the ones that struggle. If we try to treat God as our equal, um, someone to be manipulated, then we're in trouble. Fellowship is not possible. Because God, by definition, is completely different and other than us. He's the only one who can rightfully be called holy. Holy. We cannot manipulate him. And if we try, we have just into pagan practices that have occurred since the beginning of the world. Every pagan religion attempts to manipulate the gods. We can't manipulate God. It's not possible. He just laughs at us when we try. And so that's important to remember that he is the only one that can truly be called holy. And therefore, we need to pay close attention to who he is. True fellowship with him is only possible if we renounce all attempts to manipulate him. And so what happens is we kind of get stuck in this trap of, of afraid to ask God something. Um, because we're not really sure he's going to answer our prayers. Or demand something from God? What happens if we take a middle of the road where we just let him be God? When Nancy and I were uh, overseas, and we wanted to go to seminary. We prayed for two years. We were living in Germany as missionaries. wanted to come back and go to seminary. And so we laid out our requirements before God. I think it's very legitimate to do that said, God, in order for us to go to seminary, here's what you're going to have to do. Okay? Number one, we're not going to go into debt. That would violate our conviction. We're not going to do it. Number two, I'm going to seminary to go full time. So I'm not going to work. Number three, Nancy's homeschooling four kids. She's not going to work. That means that the whole responsibility is yours. Because we would violate our conviction, our convictions if we deviated from any of those three norms. Now, it sounds like it's a demanding prayer, doesn't it? But then we added to it one more thing. But we delight in you and love you. And if you say no, we'll happily serve you overseas. We'll be glad to come back on furlough and then head right back over as missionaries. This is completely your call, not ours. We're just telling you what our values are. So we prayed that for two years. Two weeks before the deadline to move, I got a call from Dallas Seminary. And they said, "Uh, you've been selected to receive this scholarship, which I'd never heard of. I've been turned down for every scholarship and grant I applied for. And so I was talking to the director, and he said, We love what God is doing in your family, in your ministry, so we would like to uh, partner with God by paying for your degree. And I said, well, how much is the scholarship? And he said, it's 100%. Books, fees, tuition, everything. You don't have to pay a penny. And I started to cry. A couple hours later, I get a call from the housing office. We just had a house come available. Average rent's twelve hundred bucks and uh, it's a man who specified that a returning missionary family take it and he's offering it for four hundred dollars a month and it's on thirty acres of land and so there's a horse riding academy that would like to offer your family free horse riding lessons in exchange for watching the horses at nighttime. My girls have been praying for two years. If we go to Dallas we get the right horses A couple hours later, I get a call from the head of the mission that said, A bunch of your donors have contacted us. They believe it's the right thing for you to go to school. They'd like to continue to pay your salary while you're in seminary. Okay? So, what took it from being demanding to not demanding? Not manipulating God. It was that last clause We will gladly submit to your will, whatever you decide. But if you want to send us to seminary, here's our personal convictions on what it's going to take. And he honored all that. You understand the difference? You cannot <clears throat> manipulate God. And you shouldn't. If you do this, I'll do this. It's not the way it works. God calls you to be faithful no matter what he does. So the Old Testament Teaches us that true fellowship involves sharing his character. And what is his character? God is love. God is gracious. God is forgiving. God's affectionate. God always does what is right. And so true fellowship involves sharing his character. This is where we've come right now. When we get into the covenant, we learn that the covenant was a statement of his character. When you read these laws, the amazing thing about the laws in the Old Testament, they're not burdensome at all. They're very easy to obey. They're very easy. They're a statement of his character. I mentioned that when I walk into any of your homes, I can tell very quickly what your values are by the way you raise your children. Are you demanding? Are you verbally abusive? Are you compassionate? Are you affectionate? How, how are you as a parent? I can tell your character by the way you conduct your business and the rules, if you will, that you put in place. I can also tell by walking into the workplace where you're a leader, a manager. What type of manager are you? Are you demanding? I can tell your character really quickly. It's no different with God. You look at the laws, the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament, and you get a sense of who he is. And so the covenant was a statement of his character. That's how he taught these slaves who he is. By the way, they came out of the Egyptian pantheon, the Egyptian set of religions, right? And so they knew those gods to be demanding and harsh. And all of a sudden they're with a God who is defending them, doing incredible miracles, feeding for them. We learned that in 40 years their sandals never wore out. Of walking. God took care of them. The covenant was not merely a set of arbitrary laws, it was the primary means to teach this group of slaves about his character. That was the primary way of doing it. And it is natural to us as breathing. When we look at each per- person and we look at the way we construct our world, we learn about their character, don't we? You know if the people around you are caring and affectionate or demanding and harsh. I don't have to tell you that. You already know it. You know if people that you're in relationships with are loving and kind? You know that or not. That's the primary way he taught them. Obedience to his commands would be the means of participating in his holy character, just like it is in your house. When your children rebel, or let's make it more personal, when you rebelled, My children were this size when my father died. When I get to glory, my children grew up and became teenagers. I finally understood my dad's love. When I get to glory, I'm just going to put my arms around him and say, thank you for loving me when I rebelled. And so obedience is the primary way of participating in his character. When he says, be loving, we're sharing in that character, aren't we? We can be loving, faithful, and pure, etc., just as he is. Therefore, when the covenant calls his people to be holy, both intimate and the new, Peter quotes Leviticus, be holy, he is calling us to an exclusive relationship that does have requirements. It does have certain behaviors. No, we can't do whatever we want. Don't listen to the world. Not only will you pay a tremendous price, you will be unhappy. You will find yourself in a moral prison. That's where you'll end up. So the question today is, how did the chari- the covenant, how did it reveal the true nature of human character? Because um, <clears throat> it did. The covenant revealed the true nature of God's character, but it also reveals our character as well. Okay. I'm going to learn some things. We're beginning to move into the problem area that surfaced through the covenant. The problem with us. Too often we, we simplify it and it's, it's, it's much larger than we make it. As the covenant taught the people the character of God, had also taught them their own character. All the commands that had an inherent rightness about them, if you will, they were good uh, many of them today in today's world we don't really understand because we're way down here. We're, we're 3,500 years from the covenant. We're looking back 3,500 years to a world we don't even understand. It's not our world. We have very little in common when it comes to ethics with those people. And so we, are act, we often act as judge for the people that lived 3,500 years before way back here that are trying to make sense in a world where women are owned as property. They could do Men could do whatever they want with the women. They could treat each other. It's a harsh world. It's a superstitious world. It's a dark world, and God speaks into this world. And he uses language that for us way down here is often archaic and hard to understand as we look at it. And so we, we find ourselves judging. How on earth could God? I hear this all the time. How could God command genocide? Well, I'll tell you what. Come with me on a journey back here, and we'll look at this world, and maybe you won't be so judgmental of God. In fact, maybe what you'll find is God is a very gracious God. That's what you'll find. Because he's dealing with the ethics of a world that had developed here, and he has a long journey to go through. I get asked the question all the time, why didn't God just say, don't rape? Why why didn't he, when he wrote the Old Testament, why didn't he put in rules on how to treat the women that you abuse? Why didn't he just say don't abuse them? Well, he had some fundamental problems to solve first. For instance, women are not property. That has to be resolved before he can get to the abuse question. And how long does it take to do that in a culture? We passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. We still haven't figured it out. And we want to. They didn't want to. How long does it take to change a culture? So it's very easy way down here to be a judge for what happened back there. And I'm suggesting that's a mistake. None of the commands were obscure or difficult. Um, I'll read you some next week. I'm not going to do them today. They're very easy. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. How easy is that to obey? Clean your hands before you eat. That's not a requirement in our home, (laughs) in all school systems. How tough is that? You read through the commands, they're very easy. They're very easy. They're not rigid. They're not hard. They're not difficult. So Paul gives us a little bit of insight in Galatians 3. Let's put Galatians 3 up there. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The law was our guardian to hold us in check until Christ came. We have just a clue right here. We're going to get more to this and we get to the New Testament. It was not intended to be a means by which humans could make themselves acceptable to God. That was never it. The law was never to be a ladder by which to evaluate levels of maturity. It wasn't that either. That's not its purpose. Rather, as the word Torah suggests... The law was a means of instruction or direction, where He's taking us. So my basic hermeneutic, my basic principle when I interpret Scripture is very simple. When God speaks or acts in culture, whenever that happens, He is doing it to bring about redemption. Fix something that is broken. He's taking us in a different direction. And that's what the word Torah, which we translate law, means. The word law for us often has the idea of rules and regulations. They didn't see it that way. The ancient Jewish people saw it as a God who didn't have laws. He had direction. He's pointing the way to happiness. They had all come out of worlds where the gods had the laws. The gods were harsh. So in Egypt, you want to know what the character of the gods are like? Go read the divination practices of Egypt. You don't want to be under those gods. You don't want to be under the gods in modern Hinduism. Come with me to Nepal, India, and take a look. Character is not what we want. And our God gave us the Torah, which is pointing the way to holiness. So the law was a means of direction, instruction, if you will. In this regard, it was a means of grace and great freedom compared to the surrounding gods. Therefore, when Moses read the terms of the covenant in Exodus 19, when they're at the base of Mount Sinai, okay, when he finished reading the basic covenant where he says, If you obey me fully, you will be my God and I will be your people. I will make you a holy nation. Here's what happens. The very next verse. Look in Exodus. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people responded together eagerly. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will do everything. What a blessing that our God was so gracious and not so demanding. These are laws that we can obey. We'll do everything the Lord has said. You can hear it. The enthusiasm which is captured in all of your hearts. If the law was neither obscure nor difficult and the people were so enthusiastic, what happened? Read the 613 commands and find one that's hard to follow. What happened? You see, the Israelites, as children of Adam and Eve, had a big problem, and they didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. The problem is internal. We're going to get to that next week. It has to do with the heart. We're going to take a look at the heart next week. They learned through their experiences that even with the sincerest intentions, there is something within them and us that works against our best efforts to live the life that God has asked us to live. That's what they learned. As hard as they tried, it wasn't even possible. Jeremiah 17, famous verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, David, after his, his infidelity with Bathsheba, cries out to the Lord, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. God, at, at the flood, before the flood came, here's what he said in Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Something is broken inside, and they figured it out. Our imaginations always run in the wrong direction. We always run toward the the pornographic, toward the addictive, the horrible, the perverse. I'm guilty of that. What snags your attention? Which headline snags your attention? There was a teacher in third grade in a town you never heard of that loved her children. Or there was a school shooting. Which one naturally grabs your attention? See where the heart takes us? Heart takes us in the wrong direction. The fundamental problem of humanity is not ignorance, as every worldview suggests. That is not the problem, it's internal. The covenant revealed this with profound reality. The Israelites thought it would be easy to serve their God, and they were enthusiastic. They got the laws, and they said, we will do all that the Lord has said. They quickly learned that the covenant was impossible to keep, as simple as it was. And it was simple. They had all the right motivation. If you obey my commands fully... You will be my prized possession. No, God said that. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They broke it. They broke it at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to trust God and disobeyed his command to enter the promised land. Numbers 13 and 14, the spies came back, we can't go in there. Have you seen those giants? And they turned away. They broke it when they murmured and complained all throughout the wilderness wanderings. They broke it when they joined Korah and his rebellion against Moses in Numbers 16. They broke it when they became impatient and spoke against God and Moses, resulting in the plague of snakes, Numbers 21. There's a comic in the office that's laying on the desk where the ushers get the the uh, 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 their name badges and everything. The preacher decides to preach in the book of Numbers. And one person says, Numbers... You're preaching in numbers. And another person says, 36 chapters of people that are self-centered and whining. And the next person says, why don't you preach on something relevant? (laughs) This is you. This is us. They broke it when they became impatient and spoke against God and Moses, resulting in the plague of snakes, Numbers 21. They broke it when they were seduced by the daughters of Midian, Numbers 25. You see, Numbers <clears throat> is, the, is our story. It's our story. It's the story of the wanderings where they failed miserably. As simple as the law was, they could not keep it. The whole history of Israel is captured by the two main ideas. The, all of the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. First, Israel consistently failed to keep the covenant. They simply could not obey. And second, the faithfulness of God to Israel through his covenant was constant. It's constant. You know the famous prayer, the serendipitous prayer. There's two footprints walking in the sand. And then all of a sudden there's one. Where's that? He said, that's where I carried you. There's one that appeared on Facebook and said, okay, I get that. What's that one with the line in the sand? That's where I drug you kicking and screaming. (laughs) That's us, isn't it? The book of Numbers is very relevant to us as a people. It's very relevant. These two ideas are captured by two passages. They're both in Isaiah. I'm going to read them to you. They're both at the end of Isaiah, by the way, and so they're both in the context of future hope of the coming Messiah. So in all these passages, uh, by the way, Isaiah is where we capture most of our prophecies about the coming messiah and how good it's going to be but in the middle of this are these passages which give us both principles one is isaiah starting in verse 7 i will tell of the kindness of the lord the deeds with which for which he is to be praised according to all the lord has done for us yes the many good things he has done for israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses so you're hearing all about how good the lord is and how faithful he is Principle number two. He, he said, surely they are my people, my children, who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Ooh, here comes the first principle. Yet they rebelled. After all that God had done, they rebelled. And grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. The very next chapter, Isaiah 64, verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no ear eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, there's those principles again, after all that he did that was good, they had no choice. They sinned. The Hebrew people, they recognized the goodness of the Torah. In spite of that, they were unable to obey it. This is our story as well, isn't it? Our heart is drawn to the pornographic. It's drawn to anger. It's our story as well. Therefore, the covenant revealed two things. The people were not like God. Only God is holy. That's what it revealed. But it also revealed that there was something inside of them, and I'm going to argue in the New Testament from Paul, that is something inside of us as well, which did not even want to be like God. Satan was wrong. We didn't even want to be like God. No, we don't really want to be faithful and holy. We would rather look at what we shouldn't look at. We would rather get angry. And therefore, it takes something very different to overcome that tendency. If the covenant was intended to make Israel a holy people, it failed miserably. But viewed from another perspective, it succeeded wonderfully. You see, the covenant revealed four things. It revealed the true nature of reality, our broken world, and us. It revealed the true nature of a holy God who's always going to do what's right and loving. It revealed God's intention that humans should share His holy character, and it revealed our fundamental inability to be holy. It's not even possible. And in that regard, as Paul said, it was hugely successful. Because God had to to get that problem on the table before he could redeem it. And that's the story of the entire Bible. God steps in to redeem what is broken. And we now know we are completely broken. So what systematic theologians call total depravity, there is not a single atom or thought in you That has not been corrupted. If you think too highly of yourself, be careful lest you fall. We're going to see some of these passages as we get into the New Testament. All right, next week, here's some questions to prime the pump, to get you thinking a little bit. After all that I just described which I suspect you all intuitively know is true, how is it that David is described as a man after God's own heart? Boy, was he wicked at times. How is it that Moses was described as the most faithful man on the earth and his blasphemy before God cost him his life? How is it that Job was displayed before Satan By God, saying, Have you considered my servant Job a faithful man? How is that even possible? We have to go back and take a look at what this means. This is the topic of next week. Before the problem was even solved, the Israelites had a problem, they didn't even know it existed. We will gladly do all that the Lord has asked us to do. That's our attitude, isn't it? And yet, don't we trip and fall regularly? Wow, what a gracious God we serve. It's not a surprise that He punishes people, it's a surprise that He saves them. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for giving us a story, <coughs> a story that captures all that you're doing and reveals the true nature of your goodness in every respect. You made it so simple for the and they still couldn't do it. You've made it so simple for us simply to follow you. And Lord, we admit to you it is so very difficult. There is something inside of us that needs redeeming. Thank you once again, Lord, for your goodness, in your Son's name. Amen. Gotta ask the ushers to come take the offering. Thank you. Thanks for being generous and obeying the Lord. To invite some of you to come up and prepare to service communion, the bread in the cup. Maybe some, a couple of others to come up and pray with people as well. The, uh, the stories of communion are familiar to all of us, no matter what our tradition is. But think about what it would be like just for a moment, picture uh, for God, the second person of the Trinity, who had all the joy that he needed to step down into our world and experience the, the very things we've been talking about this morning. The hurt, the bitterness, the tendency to move toward the inappropriate. Everywhere he looked, that's what he saw. But to actually be there as a human and to feel it up close and personal. One of the things I love about traveling overseas is when I go into any of the temples, I just want to be with the people I want to watch them, look in their eyes, smell them. I want to be close to them. Just to always remind me why Jesus came to the earth. And so it says when they pressed in on him, if you've ever been in one of these countries, they actually press in on you. <laughs> they're touching you on all sides. When they have a, my students have a question for me, uh, they're not polite like Americans. Professor, they walk up to me. And ask me questions, real close. Imagine that Jesus came down to experience that—not only to die for us, but to actually learn obedience. Hebrews says to experience what we experience. That's sacrifice, isn't it? On the night that he was betrayed, it's at the very end now of his earthly existence—at uh, least that part of it—he took and broke it. He said, "This is my body." which is for you. He gave himself for each of us. Sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me. That's not talking about just remembering. It's talking about doing it. Not only celebrating it, but becoming the very thing that God asked us to become. To to share his holy character. To move into the lives of one another. And to do it for each other because we love each other. That's what God is like. Right? After supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant. We're going to get there. A couple weeks down the road, we're going to get to the new covenant. The promise. We get to share in his holy covenant. In his holiness. Do this in remembrance of me. For those of you that are guests, this is how we close our time. Everything is gluten-free. I know that that's critical for some of you. Um, When you come forward, you can... Take the elements here. You can kneel and pray. You can take them back to your seat. And then we'll close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness once again. The more we learn of you, the more we stand in awe of who you are. The more we realize how much you sacrificed for us. Thank you for sacrificing, never giving up. In your son's name, amen. Come and celebrate communion.